Managing Violence Podcast, Season 6, Episode 7, with Hollywood stuntman and martial arts legend, Richard Norton. Because here's the deal. If, you, if most people that learn martial arts, that go into martial arts school, I would believe 99.9% .9 of them will never actually get into a real fight in their lives. So to have the total emphasis be on the combative aspects of what you do, what a waste of input into the development of a person's life, you know, of doing kata, of doing forms that a lot of reality-based people would say it's all bullshit. Well, you know, so is yoga then, so is playing chess, so is hitting a ball over a tennis net. Managing Violence Podcast is brought to you by Australian Warfighters Coffee. Now, as you guys know, I interview guests from all over the world, which means that I'm quite frequently working on this show either very early in the morning or very late at night. So between a full-time job, an unusual schedule, and four children, I consume a lot of coffee. And uh, given that I live in the coffee capital of Australia, I can be a little bit picky with what I choose to consume for my caffeine, depending on what's available at the time and how urgently I need it. But Australian Warfighters Coffee not only make a top-notch blend, but they also give back to the Australian veteran community by investing in training, education, and employment for our Aussie troops. So we'd like you to support those that support us and in turn help Aussie veterans with the transition into civvy life. Check out www.australianwarfighters.com to find out more or to purchase their epic coffee. We thank them for their service and for supporting the show. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Managing Violence podcast. I'm your host, Joe Saunders. Today, I am joined by one of my all-time martial arts inspirations. He's a local legend, but not just a legend here in Australia. He's a legend all around the world in the martial arts, uh, in the stunt world, as an actor, as a martial artist, uh, and, uh, and also as a fight choreographer. We'll talk about all of that. I am, of course, talking about Richard Norton, who uh, is celebrating 55 years of continual training in the martial arts. He's been a bodyguard to the stars, a fitness trainer to the stars, a stuntman, a fight choreographer, uh, and uh, and still actively trains all the time. Uh, he's high-ranking in a number of different systems, including Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Zendokai Karate, uh, and, uh, and Goju-Ryu Karate, as well as having an eighth-degree black belt under Chuck Norris, as we'll talk about soon. Uh, look, Richard has had a tremendous impact on the way I see the martial arts, and it was tremendous to sit down and chat with him. And we covered a lot of ground. We talked about everything from Hollywood to uh, the 70s and bouncing and so much more. So please enjoy this conversation with Richard Norton. Uh, welcome to the Managing Violence Podcast. I'm joined here by Richard Norton. Uh, now, to give a synopsis of Richard's career and accolades uh, is nearly impossible, uh, but by way of introduction, I'll try. Uh, he's been studying martial arts for over 50 years. He holds a ninth degree black belt in Zendokai, an eighth degree black belt in Chunkuk Do under Chuck Norris, a fifth degree black belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and a fifth degree black belt in Goju Ryu Karate. He is close friends and training partners were legends such as Chuck Norris, Bill Wallace, Jackie Chan, Benny the Jet, and Jean-Jacques Machado. His early career featured stints as a bodyguard and fitness trainer to stars such as the Rolling Stones, ABBA, Linda Ronstad, uh, David Bowie, Fleetwood Mac, and Stevie Nicks. And he made his Hollywood debut 40 years ago now as the masked ninja 
Kai in the Chuck Norris film Octagon, and he's worked consistently in film ever since as an actor, stuntman, and fight coordinator, including most recently spending time as the fight choreographer for the Suicide Squad series and Mad Max Fury Road. How's that for a synopsis of 55 years? <laughs> That's terrific, Joe, except it's Keo, not Kai in uh, oh. Octagon. My bad. Oh, there you go. That, show, that shows it's been a long time since I've seen the movie. <laughs> I know. Me too, man. It's, it seems like another lifetime, all that stuff. No doubt. Movie. No doubt. Well, look, you're, you're a legend of the martial arts and you've been one of my personal inspirations. Uh, and I've referenced you on the podcast a few times. So it's great to sit down and actually have a chat. Thank you, mate. No, it'll be great. <laughs> so, Richard, uh, I know we, you've done your story to death in, in every form of media over the past 40 years that you've been in the public eye. Uh, but let's, for those, for those that don't know your story, can we give a, a bit of a, a quick snapshot of how you got started uh, in this area and uh, I guess those early days as Endokai? Yeah, no, well, uh, you know, again, I won't go into detail because I've sort of mm. said a lot, but I started when I was 11. I was a very skinny little kid, grew up in a suburb of Melbourne named Croydon. And um, I was asthmatic, was very interested in martial arts, not really from the point of view of, getting like self-defense per se. It was just something that I seem to be intrigued by. And I've often said it was literally ads on the back of comic books that got me intrigued. And so I uh, threw a friend of mine that moved opposite the house I was living in, uh, where I was living in Croydon. He was going to a judo class. It was by run by a Nunawadi police sergeant. And I went along. That was my intro. A few years later, a couple of friends that I trained with told me about uh, a karate demonstration that was going to be held in Bayswater. That gentleman was uh, Tino Severano, and uh, this, the, it was a style of karate named Goju. Goju go, well, Goju Kai, Goju you know, school as opposed to system that the Okinawans would call it. And uh, that was my intro into karate, and uh, off I went. And it was in um, with Tino that I met Bob Jones, and Bob, in 1970, wanted to start his own system, wanted me to go with him, which I did, and that was the beginning of Zendokai um, in 1970. And uh, we, we had a great relationship still to this day. Bob and I are still amazingly good friends. I'm still heading up Zendokai with others, and uh, it's been an incredible journey. Yeah, I, I remember reading Bob's book, uh, Let the Good Times Roll, maybe be 15 years ago. And uh, and the, some of the stories from the, the early days were just incredible for me, as someone who started martial arts in the 90s, to uh, to think back of what that time was like in the in the 70s and the 80s and some of the challenges that you overcame and the reputation that Zendokai developed. Um, I guess for our international listeners who, who maybe... I think I'm pretty sure everyone in the Australian martial arts knows a bit about Zendokai, but someone outside of Australia may not know the reputation that you guys had, in, especially in the, the late 70s and 80s. You just want to talk to that a little bit about how that was established? Yeah, well, again, we started in 70 and it was pretty much, Bob, Bob's always had and still does have a very entrepreneurial mind, meaning he was the first one, at least for Australia, that that wanted a system that wasn't strictly based in a style. And, you know, for those who wouldn't have been around at that time, because it's a while ago, you know, if you did Shotokan, that's all you did. If you did Wing Chun Kung Fu, that's all you did. And it was very much style based. And in a way, it was kind of training with the blinkers on. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, because it's, it's great if you devote 
<clears throat> yourself to a traditional style and and everything that goes with it and focus on that but Bob wanted a style that was more like the American eclectic systems where you had a style that would incorporate any good aspects from any other styles that are around so we would bring aspects of boxing wrestling everything else in to the style and one of the reasons for that is that Bob already was a so renowned as a security person. He ran security for all the, and I always laugh when I say this because there were discos back then. <laughs> that really dates me. <laughs> but disco, so, so the majority of the people that started with us from day one were doormen, were bouncers. And so there was a big emphasis on the style of training that would suit reality-based, uh, the reality-based world. In other words, bar fights, being out in the street and everything else. And so we would focus our training a lot around, well, would this actually work in the real world? Notwithstanding that we still held very true to traditional values, we would bow, there'd be meditation, you know, it was very much based in respect as per traditional styles. But again, it was just adding, if something worked, we weren't gonna shut it out. We're gonna say, well, we need to incorporate this into the system. And it's through that, of course, that I ended up uh, in, I think it was 1972, 73, Paul Dainty, who was a very well-known uh, entrepreneur in, in Australia. He used to bring a lot of the rock and roll bands out. And he gave us a call one day and asked Bob if we'd be interested in looking after the Rolling Stones. And uh, so that started a whole new career in bodyguarding work, which I, I ended up working as a personal bodyguard for the next 25 years. Um, and so that the whole, the whole thing of Zendikai is an important chapter in my life. I can't even imagine what my life would have been had Zendikai not been formed and had I not had the association with Bob because you know, I, I, when I left school, I went straight to the immigration department you know, I was working as an interviewer and I would train every morning and every lunchtime and every night I'd be teaching at the schools uh, in Zendikai. And when the offer of bodyguarding came up, it was, such a, it was such an incredibly different world to be introduced to. And it was in 1979 that Linda Ronstad, who for those younger ones who don't know, Linda was as big as Beyonce in her day. Um, 10 Grammy Awards, everything else, rock and roll, country and work, Western, all the works. And Linda, after I worked with Linda in 1978, Bob and I, Linda wanted me to go and work for her full time in the US. And it was a big decision for me. You know, I, I always say that I look back now and I think, oh my God, if I had not taken that opportunity, in other words, if I dared not to participate, and if I hadn't had the guts to step out of my comfort zone, meaning a secure job, teaching, girlfriend, all that sort of stuff. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to take the plunge. And that just, again, set me on a whole new life journey, which includes starting to train with Chuck Norris every morning at his house in 79 and getting offered the role again of Keo, you know, his main protagonist in the Octagon. That started a whole movie career. So off we go, you know, it was a whole combination of facts. And, you know, my big, why I bring a lot of this stuff up is I, I try to put the message out to people that often there are opportunities placed in front of us and, and a lot of it's fear. You know, there's, there's a certain amount, there's, there's fear can prevent 
people from greatness. Do you know what I mean? It's very easy when confronted with something that gives you stress to say, oh, well, it's not for me. Oh, I don't really want to do it. But you, you know, you just need to sort of really look at the opportunity that you're being given. I don't mean you have to take it up, but really assess whether or not could, this could be a really life-changing opportunity and, and jump on board accordingly, which is what I did. And it, it just led to such an incredible journey working with all those rock and roll bands, traveling the world, you know, all these different countries. And then the movie career that started with Chuck that gave me the, uh, the incredible opportunity to work in Hong Kong, the Philippines and Thailand and America and everything. And, you know, some 80, 90 or whatever movies later, the journey continues. So it's, uh, it's been an incredible time, that's for sure. And by the way, this, this again gets back to Zendo Kai. The opportunity with Chuck was Bob went to America in the late 70s and met Chuck and invited him out to do some demonstrations at some kickboxing tournaments we were holding. And, um, and these were the first ever kickboxing tournaments in Australia. And so Chuck was demonstrating on the same card and I was doing demonstration with some Okinawan weapons and everything. And, you know, that's where we formed a friendship, which led Chuck to say, if I get to California anytime, you know, give him a call and we'll do some training. Of course, that's the first thing I did when I went over in 79. And uh, the rest is history, my friend. Wow. I'm interested just to just to backtrack. We'll get into the movies as we go, but uh, that transition from martial arts to bodyguard, because it, it's it's something that I guess back then, especially, um, I mean, the Zendokai was synonymous not only with martial arts but also with the security industry in Australia, or the, you can call it an industry at the time. But nearly every, nearly everyone who was uh, heavily involved in Zendokai was also working in security in some capacity, and it was uh, a little bit more of the Wild West than what we. Uh, what we have nowadays um, and uh, the, the ability to handle yourself physically was probably first and foremost the, the, pro the primary skill, maybe not quite so much the verbal de-escalation and use of force continuums and, <laughs> and all that kind of thing as, as it is now. But um, as you head into the bodyguarding world, uh, there's a whole plethora of new skills that aren't just fighting. So how did you go about, um, how were those early days bodyguarding and, and the, the learning curve there? Well, you know what, uh, again, you're right with Zendikai because of the focus on reality-based training. As I said, and I, I really like to re-emphasize that we, we still did kata, we did very traditional training with weapons, everything else, that didn't have a lot to do with the real world. In other words, there was still a real passion for that, that side of the martial arts. But again, given that we were working doors and, and doing security work, of course, we had to focus on you know, real life survival. We, and I know there's a new language. And by the way, I, you know, I always used to say with Zendikai, what we lacked in finesse and whatever we made up for with blood, sweat and tears. I mean, we, we trained as hard as anybody could in those days. And you couldn't do that today, as you probably know. Um, I would have lost my house five times, you know, because... <laughs> <laughs> the amount of sparring we did and the amount of people with teeth knocked out and, you know, bruises, contusions and everything else. And I'm, I'm not saying that's a good thing. It's just the way it was back then. Um, and again, it paved the way for some, some very strong students as a result. As far as, you know, what we talk about with security these days with being switched on, colour codes of awareness, de-escalation, 
I honestly think a lot of that has come about out of necessity. And when I say necessity, that yes, of course, it's an important skill to have. But you've got to remember back there in the pubs and clubs that we worked in, there were no security cameras. There was nothing. It really was your word against the other person's. And these days, though, everything is called on CCTV. Yep. You know, so what that camera sees will determine kind of whether you get into trouble or not, or whether you have a valid, you know, story of self-defense and everything else. So the skills of being able to de-escalate, in other words, you know, showing your hands in a non-defensive posture and everything else, a very important thing that that camera sees, or including any eyewitnesses would see that would go into police statements and again would determine whether or not, you know, you're in trouble with the, the physicality you got into. Um, but we, we were still very much aware of that. You know, a lot of this, for instance, when I started working with the bands, what was made very clear was the absolute last thing that a James Taylor or a David Bowie or whatever would want is for me as a personal bodyguard punching somebody. Because the problem was it wouldn't be Richard Norton punches a fan, it would be David Bowie or Linda Ronstadt's bodyguard hits a, hits a fan. And they made it very clear that was absolutely the last thing that they would want as a representation of that particular act. So you had to be very, very careful that you you did use, again, verbal de-escalation skills and everything. And it was about dialogue and it was about absolutely preventing any sort of physical violence around the act. Um, and that, that, that didn't really have as much to do with what would somebody get hurt as much as what the look would look like, you know, the press and everything else, because those acts were huge, you know, they always had a lot of focus from press and everything else. So again, myself was like a front or, you know, a, a representation or a representative of that band and that act. And also when we started with the Rolling Stones, that was a little, just a very short while after Altamont where the Stones did a, the rock and roll concert and had the, the Hells Angels as security and they ended up killing a punter. So you could imagine the paranoia around Mick Jagger and the boys and, and management around violence and everything else. So again, the last thing they would have wanted is a couple of guys like Bob and I just sort of going off and smacking people in the head, so to speak. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I always say when, I, when I'm training security personnel is that you're fighting three battles. You're fighting to keep yourself safe. You're fighting to keep the aggressor safe to some degree. And you're also fighting the, the, uh, the public perception. You gotta make sure that you're ticking all three boxes, um, and uh, the situation will dictate which box gets the most priority. But uh, you have to be mindful of how how it looks and how it's recorded, and what witnesses are going to recall when they're questioned about it. Um, and uh, I think that's especially important, well, as you say. Well, there's an old saying: "It's not what you did; it's what you say you did." You know, and of course, what people around perceive that you did, and they're very important factors. And, and you can people can be very in the security can be very cavalier in it, but I'd say, well, good luck. You're, the, you're going to end up doing time, you know, if you're not cognizant of that responsibility. And I, you know, as I said, it's become a very sophisticated thing now. You know, again, back in back in those days, Joe, the, the you know, martial arts with martial arts, the, it wasn't there wasn't the same focus on reality-based training. That came much later. It's it's always interesting to me that 
later in or in the 80s and everything, suddenly all these articles turn up with traditional schools having reality-based training. And I'm not sure where that came from because it didn't exist before that. And I believe it was just a nice commercial banner that they could fly. That was always a concern for me because I believe a lot of people, and I believe today, are teaching reality-based training. I'm using that term for those who don't know. I'm basically talking about street survival, street defense. But a lot of them are teaching that, and that have never had a, an actual physical confrontation in the street in their lives. So they're talking out of theory. They're talking out of what did I read on YouTube or what did I read in that book? And now I'm passing on to my students. I think that can be a very dangerous thing, you know, because if you haven't been confronted with, with real violence and you have never experienced that incredible feeling of adrenal dump, you know, those fear toxins flooding your body and that you don't know what that does to your complex and fine motor skills and how it affects your reaction times, et cetera, et cetera, then I would worry about somebody not understanding that passing on what they say is actual and real um, techniques, you know, for, for street survival. And I would include, you know, women's self-defense classes in that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a big responsibility is what I'm saying. And, you know, I, I, yeah, I think at least with the experience we had back in those early days, we could bring real world experience to what we were teaching. Well, and you're so far ahead of the game for that reason, I think, because there, there weren't a lot of other schools where you were accruing so much practical real world case study of whether what you're teaching was working. Uh, everyone else was kind of operating at a theoretical level and, and you guys were actually yeah, every Friday and Saturday night finding out. Well, and other nights of the week, yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and there's nobody better as a mentor than Bob. As You know, again, when I met Bob, he'd already been he's 10 years older than I am, and he'd had so many years, you know, of real-life experience. So, you know, for me as a traditional martial artist, to be introduced to that world and to have Bob as a mentor to basically teach me that side of... Uh, of the street, so to speak. I mean, you can't get better than that. By the way, it's, and, and I wouldn't even start to say that I would glorify that, that life in the street. But as you would know, you know, it's also a necessity. It's like law enforcement, you know, bouncers, bouncers are usually the worst people in the world until that punter in the club is screaming for a bouncer because he's getting picked on by some, you know, drunken idiot or whatever. And same with law enforcement, you know, they, I mean, they're so hamstrung with what they're able to do. Look at what's going on today. You know, you, in New York, you can't even put a knee in somebody's back or on their chest. I mean, I don't know how you control somebody when you're trying to pull out cuffs or whatever or keep your gun holster and everything with some idiot that's just going berserko and forget about the chokehold. I mean, you know, there's no chokeholds allowed and there's no knees on chest. So all that means is you're going to need half a dozen people to control one person at best. And there's, I guess my point is, there's a real lack of um, knowledge in out there as far as people's perception of, of a mindset when it comes to confront, again, confronting real world violence with, with the fear that's associated with it. You know, there's a, there's a lot going on there. And I look and I know I'm getting off, off on a tangent, but I was talking to somebody about this the other day. I got a friend in uh, Los Angeles who was in the LAPD for 35 years. 
in unrest and control. And we were talking about the difficulty at the moment with, say, a police officer being charged with an act of violence, you know, going to court, you know, especially if it's a trial and you've got 12 punters who, again, are totally uneducated in the world of real life violence. They don't understand what adrenal, you know, the, that excess adrenal in your system does to your cognitive skills, your reactive skills and everything else. And, you know, you, how many times have I heard people saying, well, you know, he should, there's a guy coming at it, some officer with a knife. Well, he should have just shot him in the leg. I say, oh, for fuck's sake, you know, all you guys have been watching is old John Wayne movies or, John, or the Lone Ranger. And you expect that you can just shoot a bloody knife or a handgun or something out of somebody's hands. They have, they have no clue of what that does to your complex motor skills. And I wish there was more education as far as that goes. And that includes, you know, security as far as bouncers, doormen, bodyguards, you know, again, if you haven't ever had the situation of being confronted with three or four guys that it's just basically verbalized, they're gonna try and rip your face off, you know, Again, people have no idea what that feels like and again, what that does to and how that determines what you would then do as a result. Oh, absolutely. And I think the more we restrict lower level force options, we the more we encourage higher level force options. I mean, if uh, it's not possible to restrain someone on the ground because X, Y, Z technique is not allowed, then you're just going to have more people being tased, more people being battened, more people being shot. Uh, because well, Here's the other thing, and I was talking to to, uh, Lou about this, you know, I nearly got involved or was going to get involved with some training for the LAPD, Los Angeles Police with Lou. But, you know, it came down, I'm paraphrasing now, that we we suddenly, we weren't allowed to touch the cadets or push them and you couldn't swear at them. And I'm like, oh, for God's sakes, you're putting these kids out on the street against some you know, Hispanic gangbanger who's covered in tats and swearing and screaming at them. I said, what do you think is going to happen to that cadet? So what it got down to, I believe a lot of the problem with the knees and especially the chokehold, I mean, anyone that's done Brazilian jiu-jitsu knows that properly applied, it is probably the best end result for the perpetrator than I would certainly, if I lost a fight, I'd rather lose it by getting choked unconscious than getting knocked unconscious, you know? rather than having my jaw broken or teeth missing or whatever, it's a very safe conclusion. The difference is the training. You know, the, you need to train people, you know, effectively and long enough to be able to know all the signs of somebody going unconscious. If you're, you know, applying carotid artery hold or even a choke hold, but especially cutting off the blood supply, you know the warning signs. You know when somebody's starting to lose consciousness and when to let them go, et cetera, et cetera. But, if you're expecting police officers to apply a chokehold and they've had maybe one week's training over the last three years, I would say good luck, you know? So there, there needs to be, you know, a focus on, on the type of training given to law enforcement when it comes to restraining holds like that. Because, you know, I'd love to quote Napoleon. Napoleon said confidence is a factor of preparation when he's talking and he was talking about combat on, you know, in war. In other words, the more prepared you are, for physical violence, the better able you are to be in a state to de-escalate, to take it to various levels of force. And, and, and that's a very important thing. So for someone like myself, having trained all my life, I believe I had the confidence to be able to talk something down a lot longer than the average person who would be responding purely out of fear. You know, um, it's, a, it's a big thing.
I absolutely agree. And it's something I've said over the years as well, is that the, the more confident you are in your physical skills, the more patience you can have. Of course, um, of course. Because the, you know that if it, if it does escalate or if, it, if the verbal de-escalation doesn't work, you're still going to be safe. Uh, if you don't know if you're going to be safe, you'll preempt. Yeah, and so many people out of fear will react, will overreact, and that's where the extreme violence. And I'm I'm including police officers as well. When they're in fear of their life and they've got a, a sidearm, that's probably what they're going to go to, you know, as opposed to somebody who believes they could maybe, you know, carry out as hard as it is, an effective knife defense, for instance, or whatever it might be. Once again, just reiterating, it comes down to your training. You know, Benny Okidas has a favorite saying, how you train is how you react. And if you haven't pressure tested whatever it is, you know, that you believe you're going to live in the city, if you haven't pressure tested the nth degree, given that it's almost impossible to, to replicate actual reality, but if you haven't had gone to a school or a training environment where you are being pushed to the limit, then good luck thinking that you're going to come out with the goods in the real world. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, I think that's sometimes the, the problem when you're, uh, your CFO or your financial oversight gets involved in your training because they start looking at the litigation cost or compensation costs of doing high-intensity training and you got recruits being injured and off on full pay while they're being injured. Um, and it's always like they prefer to pay the, the one-off legal bills uh, when they screw it up in the real world rather than um, pay for, pay for you know, compensation and training if the training gets out of hand. But I think the, the downside of that is that there are better ways of doing the training, but the, there's a sort of a closed-minded attitude towards it because you say, well, we can't, we can't train with contact or we can't train with you know, live whatever. You know, there's so, so much that goes wrong with training when it becomes overly bureaucratical. Yeah, and I, I, I would, I would has to say that most of it's down to funding, because you know to put, to have the correct trainers to give the cadets or whatever or the new recruits the time, on the mats as it were to learn these skills is costly. But again, look at the result. Look at the results we're getting over in the US now. I mean, it's mayhem, you know. And I, I, I just watch so many of those videos, you know, those confrontations with protests or whatever. The reaction I see from so many of them is just born out of fear. It's born out of not having any other skill set than using maximum force. And it's frightening, you know, mm. and it, it's, it's got to be addressed. It's got to be looked at, you know. Um, it's, uh, look, I, you know, I remember going to a, uh, LAPD training facility way back, you know, that Lou set up. And this is basically where they have a huge screen and it's videos and they play bad guys and good guys. And you've got a laser gun and you've got to shoot the good guys. And I mean, the bad guys, sorry, <laughs> Freudian slip, got to shoot the bad guys and, and not the good guys, etc. And the officer in charge, I remember telling him, telling me that so many cadets would literally wet themselves. That's the fear they felt even knowing it was a video game. I mean, but you know, once that sense of reality came in and, and there was a, even though it was an animated sort of perp or a, a you know, a, on a screen shooting back at them, the amount of fear they held and, and their accuracy rate was absolute shit. And I thought, wow, that, that's fascinating. You know, again, an indicator of what real fear can do to people. Yeah. And it's involuntary, you know, this is why, you know, I love uh, Tony Blower's research, you know, I mean, Tony's, I've known Tony since the early 80s, and 
the amount of research he's done into his spear um, system and basically, you know, the startle flinch, you know, it's what everybody will do. You will flinch and you won't flinch with a nicely formed block or whatever. If somebody just suddenly hauls up, I've tried to hit you with what we know as a sucker punch, you know, you will react. And the, the big part of that, that training is, you know, that what do you do after that flinch? Yes, you might survive the ambush, but as he said, he, his training involves using the startle flinch as a bridge to your style or your system. In other words, you know, use that as, as a reaction to catapult you into what you do, whether you're a grappler, puncher, whatever it is. But again, it, the point of that is that what he's shown is, and he's got clips of Mike Tyson getting suddenly getting startled and various people, none of them suddenly do this. They all go, oh, it's almost the old shit moment, you know, which everybody does. And again, your training after that is what will determine, you know, what you do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, certainly a, a massive gap, uh, I think in the training and, uh, and certainly from my own perspective, coming, going from martial arts into bouncing, having not had that, uh, yeah, I didn't grow up around violence. So my, my first really introduction to violence was occupational. <laughs> and, uh, that was a, that was a learning curve. Uh, those first couple of months when you're starting to figure out, like, how do you get from, uh, the conversation to the fight? Um, and uh, and usually my answer was I just get punched in the face first and hope that I'm still standing and then go from there, uh, which which isn't isn't a great strategy. Well, and that leads into a bit of the problem with a lot of training in martial arts schools and a lot of training in general is there's so much focus put on once once we're fighting. In other words, you know it's on the first punch is thrown whether it's by you or the other person. What techniques do I do? Blah blah blah. But, but as anybody who's been in that world knows, it's the pre-fight that determines so much many times the outcome, you know? That's not taught. You're not taught. Like, for instance, you might be in a class and you'll see somebody teaching headlock defense. And what will happen is the student will grab the person and pull him over in a headlock, and then they'll show you how to get out of it. The problem is, how did you get there in the first place? You know, you need exactly. to be taught all the pre-visual skills leading up to that headlock. Well, you know, we did, it was a punch and then a scramble and then you grabbed in the headlock. Somebody doesn't just walk up and just grab you like this. If they're able to do that, you're probably brain dead anyway, you know? <laughs> in other words, so the pre-visual skills are very, very important. And again, I'm, I'm quoting Tony, but he's done so much work on that aspect of training which is so overlooked in so many schools because once the bell goes, as we say, you know, if you're a fighter in the ring or whatever, there's a lot of fear. If you're a boxer walking to the ring, all the thoughts, gee, what if I lose? What if I get knocked out in five seconds? What if I look like an idiot in front of all my friends? But generally speaking, you know, with a bit of experience, once a bell goes, you just do what you do. So I get that part of it, but but again, what's not addressed is that mental state leading up to that that sitting in a bar and having somebody notice somebody with covered in tats giving you that eye that goes, oh my God, you know this is this is not looking good. What that fear does to you, and you and again, you know what you choose to react with, whether you choose to avoid, whether you leave the bar. If it goes in the, you know, orange where you start to have somebody approach you, you know, what's your mental state addressing that? And this is all before the first punch is thrown. Mm -hmm. I mean, Jeff Thompson, another, you know, amazing sort of uh, martial artist in England who was really the first to sort of question 
traditional arts and their validity in the real world. You know, he wrote, you know, on the door and watch my back and he wrote books on fear. As he said, for him, you know, the amount of the of fights that were just completely lost before the first punch was ever, ever thrown, just based on naked aggression, like somebody just with veins sticking out, screaming in your face, and getting what we know is a natural response for a lot of people, and that's the old freeze syndrome. You just freeze, you know, your feet stick to the floor. And this gets back to, again, training in a way that will at least simulate somewhat that sort of adrenal situation and, and get you used to it. And at least so, if it ever really happens to you, it's not as though for the first time. You can at least go, ah, I have been pushed. I know what it's like to be screamed at and yelled at and everything else. I, I'm okay. And, and hopefully, again, your pulse will be down to a manageable level and you'll be able to react accordingly. I mean, it's still difficult, but that's, that's the uh, plan anyway. Yeah, I think those pre-incident uh, yeah, awareness factors uh, is something that, is, especially working as a bodyguard, I mean, that's your bread and butter uh, because you need to be able to assess the crowd. You need to, be able to see the way forward. You need to be able to guide your client and try and avoid the... Yeah, the the person who doesn't look quite right, or be able to be able to angle your resources, or whatever it is that that you need to do. But you need to be able to foresee that because your client, one, I'm sure you've had plenty of clients that really had zero situational awareness to begin with, um, either either naturally or because of substances. Uh, but also the, I mean, their job is to interact with their fans, not to not to scan them. No, a hundred percent. That's exactly right, mate. That's not their job. That's my job. You know, and. And again, this gets back to having, you know, you mentioned in the very beginning about, you know, situational awareness. That's the job. Because if it ever got actually physical, it's almost like you haven't done your job. You know, they used to say the good bodyguard is is when you don't know you have them, you certainly didn't know you needed them. Your job is to go in, you know, if I went into a concert, you know, the first few rows, you would assess him. You'd look at him, who's been drinking too much? You just get a bit of a gut feel. Accordingly, you would set up local security. You might say, look, just keep an eye on those dudes over there or whatever. You know, and then I'd sit on the edge of the stage and my job, if anyone actually made it on stage, was to be the one to get them off, you know. But again, with all the parameters you set up beforehand, hopefully that was the last thing that would happen. I mean, the difficult part for me was going to clubs, you know, with, say, David, you know, David Bowie, and he's saying... It, then you're one out, you know, you go to a club, you know, all the little girlies from some little shit kicking down the US are all, oh, it's David Bowie. Of course, a lot of the guys didn't fancy that too much, you know, it's their territory. And mm-hmm. you had to be very situationally aware then, you know, who's giving a little bit too much attention. And as you know, there's so many physical sort of signs of that will predetermine a, a, an actual physical act, you know. And that was your job is to really suss it out and decide, do I need to get David out there? You know, or, or more than anything, you have to put yourself between the client and that, that possible physical confrontation. That was the job. But once again, the, the worst thing that could happen is if it was allowed to actually kick off. I'm not saying it wouldn't, you know, because again, people always think you're dealing with very rational people. Well, that's hardly ever the case. They're either, you know, affected by drugs, alcohol or whatever, and you're not dealing with a rational human being, in which case you had to often get physical, but it also need to be, I used to call, you know, it's why I love jujitsu because of the, the ability to manipulate and handle people 
in a way that in, didn't involve just straight up punching them in the face, you know? And I call that low level response to low level violence. Like if suddenly even is just being loud and intentionally maybe looking aggressive, it's still, you still not do not have the lawful right to suddenly punch him in the face, you know? So these, these low level responses are very important for security and people in law enforcement and bouncers and doormen and everything else. And that was something that we used to focus on a lot, you know, in our early days of training. Yeah, I think there's a there's a piece of the general public miss a lot about personal protection and bodyguarding, especially with with uh, high profile VIPs, is that you're you're not just protecting their welfare, you're also protecting their brand. Yeah, uh, mm -hmm. because I mean, like, there's there's a I'm sure you've probably seen the meme floating around of um, Jason Momoa with his uh, bodyguards who are you know, like a head shorter than him, uh, and they're saying, why does a guy like that need to have a, need to have security? So because if Jason Momoa punches a photographer in the face then what how much money does that cost him and, to, and how much does it, does it affect his brand his public his pr if someone catches him on the bad day i mean and who's to say it's a photographer and not someone who has ill intent um so th there's a role there and, and even uh, i've seen the same thing thrown around professional fighters walking around with security why do they need security because if they break the hand and they miss a payday <laughs> then we've, <laughs> we've we've got a problem yeah, no, and as you say, you know, the the obvious thing of a civil lawsuit, you know, let alone awesome. a criminal sort of suit, yep. and uh, that that's huge. And you know, and as I said, it's 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 a necessity, you know, unfortunately, and it's 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 bizarre the amount of people that you would think are the last ones that need bodyguards because of size of whatever. I mean, it's for that very reason. The amount of idiots out there that would like to be the one that sort of dropped. Dwayne Johnson on his ass or something, The yeah. Rock or whatever yeah. it is, you know, it's it's quite astounding and it's um <laughs> I don't know, it just it certainly happens. Um yeah. how, how do you see the the attitude towards celebrities changing? Uh, I know you're not you're not um directly involved in the close personal protection, but you've certainly got a lot of high profile friends. Uh in the modern era, it is so much more important for celebrities to be so directly engaged with their fans through social media and so on. And Dwayne Johnson is a perfect example. He's constantly posting videos of, of, you know, pulling up next to people, shaking their hands. And there's, there's this expectation that if you see the rock in public, you can just go up and give him a hug and, and shake his hand. And, uh, and that's normal. Do you think there's a, there's less boundaries now for the public in terms of what they expect of celebrities? Oh, absolutely. Well, because as you know, you know, you, you even for me, you know, that, and I, goodness me, you know, I did B-grade movies. I'm not making any illusions about what I do, but still there are a certain amount of people, oh, you're Richard Norton. I mean, they, they, they all, but they are so familiar because of seeing you on screen and everything else. Their perception is you're already their friend. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And getting back to the problem, these days with how, how say a Dwayne Johnson or whoever, a Jean-Claude Van Damme or whatever would interact with fans is the problem is social media now. See also back then, you know, nobody had, there weren't cell phone cameras, you know, iPhones and everything like this. And as we already talked about CCTV cameras, but now there's somebody filming everybody doing everything. So if you're acting a little bit arrogant or out of line or abusive or whatever, you're a star and that's the way you interact with it, with a fan, you can bet it's going to be out on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram the very next day. And that's something that unfortunately celebrities need to factor into their behavior. 
Hence, again, I would say the need, if they've got security, to have very professional security that are going to represent them in the best possible light, you know? Yeah. And then, I, you know, here's the other thing, too, I was going to say, Joe, and, you know, this is another thing about, you said about, oh, well, why would so-and-so need a bodyguard? Well, I remember a fan coming up to me once in New York and when I was with James Taylor, you know, and, and say, oh, why does James Taylor have a bodyguard? We love him, you know? And I said, yeah, I said, well, the question I'd ask you is, how come John Lennon's dead? Now, meaning that, that you know, when John Lennon was shot, that, that's like what we would term an absolute million to one occurrence, you know? But it happened. And that's really what someone like me was there for. It wasn't for the millions of loving and adoring fans. It was for that one in a million that had a totally different agenda that was completely irrational, you know, for whatever reasons that had a different agenda to everybody else. And that's what you were there for. You know, I used to say that you're a bit like an Alsatian dog, you know, with the owner and people would maybe walk over and a dog would look up and you'd walk a little close and the ears prick up and maybe you get too close and the teeth start to... That's kind of like what you were there for. You're like the sheepdog, you know, looking after the flock. And, you know, it, it unfortunately, it was an absolute necessity. And I still, you know, I actually know exactly where I was when John Lynn was shot. I was actually in Peter Asher's office. Peter Asher used to manage James Taylor and Linda Ronstadt. And I used to train Peter a little bit. I was in his office and he, I walked in, he was on the phone to James in New York. You know, Peter was in L.A., Anyway, he hung up and I remember Peter said to me, oh, that was weird. James just suddenly said, oh, gee, that sounded like gunshots. Well, they were the actual gunshots that killed John Lennon, which is wow. quite remarkable that I know wow. exactly where it was. And, and in my line of work, that I never forgot that moment because I thought, gee, did he have anybody with him? Were there any security? Obviously not, you know, and have, these are the pitfalls of fame and celebrity. And again, that one in a million that just has an out of whack agenda, you know, hence, hence no longer having uh, John Lennon with us. Mm. You know, I was even with Linda and she used to get so many threats and everything against her. And you'd think, why, you know, but it happens, you know, and uh, this is why the necessity for, for the security industry you know, but again, a well-trained security industry. Mm -hmm. Just like to switch gears, I'd be remiss if I didn't pick your brain a little bit about Hollywood uh, and uh, and the impact that Hollywood has uh, on perceptions of violence and perceptions of, of what what violence looks like, what martial arts looks like. And certainly, I mean, you've done 80 odd martial arts films um, that, well, not all martial arts films, but, but action films primarily. Uh, and, um, Early on, I mean, uh, the martial arts films I grew up with uh, in the, in the 80s and early 90s, they were very stylized. Like it was, it was like watching a, watching a karate demonstration or a, or a Wing Chun demonstration on, on TV. And I think that's what people expected violence to actually look like. Um, I'd be interested to know, firstly, at the, at the very early stages when you were transitioning from, quote unquote, the reality of, uh, of bouncing, bodyguarding, et cetera, then into Hollywood and, uh, and doing something that was unrealistic for the cameras how was that transition was that was that anything you even thought about or is it just this is just how it's done this how this how you fight on camera that's that's exactly it just what you said that's just what we did that's how you did it back then you know and you know look film film sort of went through all different eras you know all the Chinese Hong Kong movies you know they did Vietnam based movies they did 
kickboxing movies, eventually mixed martial arts. It became whatever was most popular in the culture of martial arts at that day. I mean, I look at some of the fight scenes that I did back in the 80s and it's funny, you know, though I, I again, it's, it's just what we did, like jumping, spinning crescent kicks. I mean, God help me, you know, would you ever do that in the street? Well, hopefully never, you know. But it was really about entertainment, you know. A lot of it was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, you know, very unrealistic situations and everything else. And look at, look at, you know, I work with David Carradine on Kung Fu, The Legend Continues. And you, I, you, I remember looking at those shows and you've got these guys with guns and you've got a guy, you know, doing this with his hands and he's kind of defeating everybody. And you go, well, okay, good luck with that, you know? <laughs> but it, it's still, you, you have to separate entertainment from reality. And, and what we also knew, even back then, and off times, whatever was real would look pretty boring on screen. Mm. Even the way about, you look at Rocky in, Yes, Sylvester Stallone and Rocky. I mean, these big, wide-swinging punches. They work for camera, a big reaction. The audience went along for the ride and job done. Whereas if you watch very tight, you know, jabbing and uppercutting and everything else, it's very hard to film and it's just not very visual. So hence, a lot of that dictated the style of a fight. Now, having said that, I, I you know, I, uh, talking with friends like Michael J. White and Scott Atkins and that, the level that people like that have taken action on screen is is remarkable. I mean, I'm so freaking impressed. I wish I had that sort of expertise back in the day. Um, and again, it's it's just it's just a, a a result of the evolution of entertainment and film, and the fact that you have to keep changing it up. You know, you can't keep doing the same thing year after year. It can still be amazingly good but boring to a fan that's seen it over the last couple of years. So, you know, when I was working in Hong Kong, I remember Sammo Hong saying to me, you know, on a Jackie Chan shoot, he said, oh, Richard, why don't people like my movies in America? I said, well, Sammo, where do you want me to start? You don't have a script. The fights are half an hour long. There's guys going off mini tramps and wires. That's what worked in that day. But, but, you know, and again, if, if if I love watching, like Sammo Hong for me is the most creative action director performer I've ever worked with. I recently watched some of his stuff. He's well, he's a couple of years younger than me, so he's I'm 70 now, so he's probably 68. And I looked at some of the fight scenes, and it's it's like watching a Bourne movie. This it, sure, it's a little little more artistic in that, but the close quarters aspects of the fights he does and how much they're based in reality as much as you can on film. I mean, I'm, I'm just so incredibly impressed. But again, it's just evolved to that point. You know, look at Atomic Blonde. Now I look at Atomic Blonde and I go, well, I don't, for me, I don't believe it. You know, I don't believe she would be capable, <laughs> all of that, but it's amazingly well staged. You know, I just watched, uh, what, what's it called? She just did another one, it's on Netflix, I forget, you know. Anyway, you look at Jason Statham and all these sorts of people, a lot of it has evolved to be more reality-based, that's for sure. Mm. But it's, I just think it's a, it's a big mix these days. You know, you look at uh, films that, that, again, Jackie used to do this, so incredibly entertaining. Yeah. And you just, you've got to step aside and go, it's a movie. It's meant to entertain. It's not real. 
You know? Yeah, it, it's interesting you say like it, it sort of follows these um, these sort of they, they, it's almost like the four minute mile. Like once someone does something, then there's a there's a spate that will follow that. Uh, like I know when when the Bourne movies came out, and all of a sudden you had these really short, quick cuts and and changes and and shaking cameras and all that kind of stuff. And then everyone was doing that for a while, and they were, I think you've seen the same sort of thing with. Uh, John Wick movies. It's like, oh, there's a there's this really nice integration now of, of grappling and striking and gunplay all into the one sort of sequence. And and now, um, what was a Chris Hemsworth movie that came out last year? Uh, yeah, um, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that one sort of has has some John Wick sort of vibe to it. Um, it's just, well, it's all the same sort of people doing the choreography. But y- yes, but here's what I would say about that. Even with the John Wick, I I don't know where you, what you do with it now. They're doing John Wick. I don't know what they're up to, four or five four, or four. Five of them. Yeah. You know, it's very hard with that combination of judo and gunplay and everything else. And it's amazing. But your problem is, where do you go? And how do you up, the, up the, the game from what you've already seen? Look, we saw that with Steven Seagal when, when Nico Above the Law and those films came out in the very beginning with Seagal. They were huge because people had never seen Aikido demonstrated on screen. Somebody with their hands down by their sides and guys doing 360-degree flips through the air. Cut to a few movies. For him to do the same thing, people were like, yeah, I've already seen you do that. I'm bored. What else can you do? Hence him starting the punch and kick, which for me was far from impressive. But anyway, <laughs> it, it's just the way it is. You know, unfortunately with film and cinema and everything else, it's about entertaining the masses. And people that love action movies have seen everything. How the hell do you make it different the next time? That's a huge, huge challenge. I always get that when I'm coordinating movies. Well, we want to do something different. I say, well, okay. <laughs> I believe every move possible has already been done and done in some shape or fashion already on film. It's now got to be based on story and character. That's all you can really do. It's like a jigsaw puzzle where you take the same moves and you mix them up and put them in a different cadence and different order. That's really kind of what, what, what you're down to, you know, it's tough. It's tough because there's so many, you know, they weren't around when I was doing it. There were some, but the expertise again of some of the people I see, and I mentioned like Scott or Michael J. White and people like that, they're just, they're incredible physical specimens with what they're able to do and God bless them. And I would like to think that what I call very basic stuff that I did at least set a bit of ground you know, the the stage and everything for development from that, you know what I mean? It's like, okay, well, we've got that. Well, how can we improve on it? And that's what's gone on over the years. And, and now you just see incredible representation of physicality and fight form on, on cinema these days. And of course there are people's ability to shoot it properly. You know, I mean, you mentioned that close in with Bourne, uh, you know, that started even, I think, with with um, Lethal Weapon with Mel Gibson. Mm. He did a bit of a jiu-jitsu fight. And it's in the rain. It's at night. The camera's in there and all shaky. And a lot of that was designed to hide the fact that a lot of times the actor had no idea what they were doing. <laughs> the difference now that you have some certain amount of people that are very skilled, so you can pull the camera back bit like the old Bruce Lee style where you actually saw a full shot, almost like watching a stage version where it's in full of where a kick started, where it ended. And you saw the absolute perfection and the ballet like movement of the actor performing it. Um, and I think we've got a lot of people are capable of that. And that's exciting to me because we can get to enjoy 
again, what I refer to a wide shot, like instead of, it's like if you go to watch a demonstration or a, say a stage play, you're watching that in one wide view. You can choose to focus on different things. Well, I think a film to a certain degree is getting back to that, you know, a wide shot, not just always trying to disguise again, the, uh, the fact that the actor's not that good. Yeah, actually, what, the one that really stood out to me as impressive in recent years uh, was Tom Hardy in Warrior. I think he, um, I, I watched that and I bought in. Uh, I, I watched his, I could tell he was trained. I could tell he, he moved well, at least from, from what was shown on camera. But um, yeah, it's, it, it is impressive when you've got an actor who really immerses themselves in learning the skills. Well, and, and I know for a fact, like Keanu Reeves, I mean, he, mm. he look, it's not speaking out of, out of school but you know he's a bit of a pot smoker he tends to be a bit overweight but one thing i know that for john wick he just totally committed i mean if you look at some of the clips you see on youtube of him doing gun handling and mag oh, yeah. changes and everything he's like an absolute professional and that came about through committing and putting the hours in and the time in to become that good and it shows you know and god bless him for that you know that's that just makes for a fantastic environment for amazing action you know on film and uh i think tom you know albeit a lot of the techniques there were you know a lot of those fights he won with a punch or a technique and everything but you could still see that he'd put on weight he built his traps up he did all that sort of stuff and i always appreciate when an actor will commit in that regard mm. um it's you know, with the films I've been doing lately, like Suicide Squad or, or whatever, I mean, the, the, the most heartwarming thing is when you get an actor like a Margot Robbie or Scarlett Johansson goes in this shell who absolutely commit to the training, who absolutely make you know that they just want excellence out of what they do, you know? And, uh, and that, that's fantastic, you know, for us, you know, to be able to get the actor actually in there rather than a stunt double doing most of the action scenes so we can bring a lot of drama you know mm. to the what's happening on screen yeah i think i think margot robbie is probably one of the more underrated in terms of um, her commitment to the physicality of her roles uh i've seen i've seen you post about it on facebook over the last couple of years and uh yeah i, I had no idea i had no idea that she that she was as into it as she is she was she was a she was a dancer you know earlier on which helped a lot but even that withstanding, again, it's her commitment. You know, like on Suicide Squad, you know, I, she was working sometimes 12-hour days. You know, they're long days. I'd say, Margot, even if you can give me 20 minutes at the end of a day just to run through some of the tools that we're going to need in the fight. And out of everybody, she was the one that was always there. She would be knackered and she would still turn up and do 20 minutes or half an hour. And I'd go to this house she was staying at in where we were filming, you know, in... in um, um atlanta you know georgia and man i you know god bless her. her her commitment was second to none and again i would say to people that wise people like margot have the careers and success they have or a scarlet or whatever is because of the level of excellence that they demand of themselves they know it doesn't just happen by accident you know i i said to margot i said i i believe i could teach you just about any fight scene possible you know, she is that talented. Her ability to remember the actual beats of a fight scene, whether it's shooting or whatever, is just, it's astounding, you know. It, it, 
you know, there's a scene you'll see in, in, in the latest one, whenever it comes out, I can't tell you much about it, obviously, but I had a, was having a throwing the back kick. It was the stomach. And I said, in training, I said, Marga, you'll just shoot that straight up toward the face. You know, you could do this. And if we can have camera over the baddie's shoulder and see you actually executing a move like that, it will give a lot of credibility to, you know, you as the character. And I remember one take we did, I, I went up to her and said, where the fuck did that come from? I said, I couldn't have done it that fast in my best day. You know? and, and I just love that. You know, it, it's, it's, it's fantastic when that happens. All right. Final question for you as we, as we uh, conclude the, the Hollywood section is, uh, I'm just curious whether you, as someone who's taught martial arts for most of your life, uh, do you think that as, as, Hollywood changes its perceptions on violence and the, and the, and the types of fight scenes that are depicted from you know, the, I guess the, the Taekwondo or the flashy kind of uh, uh, Hong Kong style that was, uh, that was popular through to the grittier Krav Maga Filipino martial arts style through to um, MMA now. Has that changed what people look for when they come into a martial arts dojo? Even if they think they're looking for self-defense, do you think it's changed their perception of what they should be getting? I would say that, yes, I mean, the perception of what martial arts is, is very much influenced by the type of violence to see on film. For me, it's not a good thing. You know, um, I believe that, that what's missing and a lot of what we get to put on screen, obviously because of the stories and the characters, you know, is the actual art side of what we do. You know, um, Rodney King is a really good friend of mine in South Africa. He's, he has monkey boxing and just does incredible posts. And I remember Rodney doing a thing on martial arts, what it means to be a martial artist. And he said quite correctly that so much of the emphasis these days is put on the martial. In other words, the combative aspects of the arts and not so much on the art. In other words, there's a reason we go in and we line up and we have we bow and we show respect to each other, you know? In a lot of schools, that's almost called old school, that you would have a bit of honor and a bit of integrity and everything else about yourself, especially in a caste situation. And I would say, why is that old school? Why isn't that just every day, you know? And we don't get a chance to show the art side of what we do on screen, because if you're John Wick and you're in a room full of assassins with guns, how can you possibly show that? I get that. But it also distorts, again, what I think people believe martial arts is, you know, and what it actually has to offer. Because here's the deal. If, you, if most people that learn martial arts, that go into martial arts school, I would believe 99.9% .9 of them will never actually get into a real fight in their lives. So to have the total emphasis be on the combative aspects of what you do, what a waste of input into the development of a person's life, you know, of doing kata, of doing forms that a lot of reality-based people would say it's all bullshit. Well, you know, so is yoga then, so is playing chess, so is hitting a ball over a tennis net. You know, there are a lot of rich different reasons for, for the physicality of certain sports or arts that you would take on. And I think the ability to understand that, that combat is as much about what you don't do as what you do do. As I said, the, for a fist to actually start flying, for you to go into combat, it's just not going to happen for most people, you know? And I wish people would understand and see the benefits 
of a good martial arts system that incorporates what it's like to be a gentleman, to have honor, to have integrity, and to live uh, uh, as a martial artist, not just somebody involved just in the martial side, uh, if that sort of makes sense, you know? I mean, I, I just thank God that I came through traditional systems when I started that taught me that aspect. You know, I know one of the questions you're going to ask is about books. You know, one of my, my favorite books is Zen and Japanese Culture by D.T. Suzuki. And it was all about Zen and the influence on the arts and where the mind of, say, the samurai would be in relation to swordsmanship and combat. And again, it, it, it shows you that even the samurai, you know, who were the ultimate warriors in that sense, in that era, were also masters of Chanayu, the tea ceremony, or Heiku, you know, four-syllable poetry, or flower arranging. In other words, that balance with the martial was essential to them to become actual citizens with, with culture, with integrity, with honor, hence the Bushido Code of Honor. And I just, again, hope that people understand there's so much uh, to be gained from, you know, being involved in a good martial arts system that will at least give them that balance. Of course, understanding that the martial is important because most of the arts were born out of survival, you know, on a, in a warlike environment, whether it's civilian environment that involves violence or whether it's on an actual uh, combat or on a, on a field, you know, a war field. So again, just a nice balance is what I would wish for. Yeah, uh, and, and just to close off on that, I think it's a, it's a really good <laughs> opportunity for me to tell you, the, the first time I met you, and you probably probably don't even remember the seminar, but you were teaching a seminar at uh, Red Dragon Kung Fu in Moray Field in um, Brisbane, north of Brisbane. Yep. And uh, this is probably 2008, I think, around about that time. And uh, it was a night seminar, and I, and I think you might have been flying in from somewhere because I think your flight was delayed because we were standing around for quite a while, uh, and there was some murmuring going on about, where's Richard? Uh, and I was, standing, I, was, I was with Dean Lawler. Uh, Dean and I were standing chatting. And I'd, yeah. never, I'd never met you at this stage. And uh, I remember you, you, came, you arrived in the taxi, it was like an hour after the start time or something. And, uh, but yeah, I'm sure you won't take offense, but you looked like shit. <laughs> you, look, you looked like you just got off a long haul flight. I think you might've. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Thank you for that. <laughs> but I, mean, I, I saw you get out. I think I was feeling pretty good about myself. Yeah. <laughs> no worries, it's getting, it's getting better, it's getting better. Uh, but uh, I saw you get out of, the, out of the taxi and I, and I thought, man, he just, it looks like he's just been, yeah, had the worst day. And I thought, this, this is not going to be a great seminar. It's not going to be a high, a high energy seminar. Anyway, you went through and introduced yourself to everyone, said hello. Uh, and, uh, and he went off and got changed. And you came back out of the room like 10 minutes later, wearing your red gi. And it was like you were a brand new person. Like the, your face was different. Your energy was different. The, the aura was different. There was energy in the room. And uh, you taught a seminar on street self-defense. And there's a couple of things that stood out to me. One was he used me for, to be a demo dummy probably because I was the biggest guy in the room. Uh, and probably thought if he hit me, I wasn't going to break, maybe. But uh, you used me for a demo dummy and you were doing, um, were doing some fence work. I think the, 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 the fence hands and sucker punches and so on. And I remember you throwing a headbutt at me. And it was so believable, just as you were demonstrating, the facial expressions, the energy, the speed, everything. And I actually thought you were going to headbutt me in the face. I, I honestly thought that I'm going to wear this and I'm just going to have to grin and bear it so I don't ruin the seminar. And you stopped with skin-on-skin -skin contact, literally of your, your forehead on my chin. 
And then you did the same thing with a punch and it was the exact same thing. It was like skin on skin contact, full speed, right up until the last millisecond. And I was so impressed because I'd never had someone demo on me with that much control. And then later on, that was the first thing. The second thing was later on, I was watching you just move around talking to people and I was mesmerized. I was watching you and I was like, why, what is he doing that's different? That's like catching my eye. And I realized that just the way you were walking was like every muscle in your body was firing at the exact right millisecond to be efficient. And I was like, this man has reduced walking to an art. <laughs> and and, and, I, and I, it actually changed how I approached my martial arts. At the time, I was very combative minded uh, and I was just looking for techniques and, and, and hard training and, and all that good stuff. And I was, you know, I was, what, early 20s. And then I started looking at that and going, how can I make everything my martial art? How can I make the way I walk, the way I move, the way I, the way I open the fridge door? How can that be martial art? And, uh, and that, was a, that was a whole thought process that was triggered just from that one seminar of, of meeting you, firstly seeing the transformation as you switch on to Showtime, and secondly, just watching the way you, you moved and instructed in the class. So uh, that has left a lifelong impact on me, and you probably have no idea it even happened. <laughs> No, thank you, Joe. I appreciate that. You know, it, it's funny. My, my, it's, it's a, I've had a few situations, like I taught at Chuck's convention once, Chuck Norris's in his UFAC convention in Vegas. And I remember the same thing. We'd flown in on an international flight and there was something, I don't know whether it was the air in the plane or whatever, but I, I almost like had an asthma attack, you know? And I remember getting the hotel room and I, it's the first time I've ever said this because I had like 300 black belts on the floor waiting for me. And I said to Judy, I said, you know what? I said, I don't think I can do this, you know? And I've never said that before. And you know what she said, which she has said so many times, she said, you always get through it. That You always get through it. And, and it's a bit of a joke, you know? She would always say, yeah, you, you're great when the cameras are rolling and then I get the wreckage <laughs> at home, you know what I mean? And, there's something about the way we train that means, yes, you, you have to be up to the task. It, it is a mindset that you could imagine being on a door or something or out in the road and being tired and knackered and everything and confronted with a situation where you have to do what you do. That's not the time for you to go, oh, I'm not up to this today. I can't do it. It doesn't, that sort of mindset can't even exist for you. So I have sort of learned to go, you know what, I can feel absolute crap like you said I probably was that day. But the old saying, the show must go on, you know? And it's amazing once you do it a few times, you absolutely, you, you change your belief system. In other words, you know that no matter what your condition, you are capable, you are capable of extraordinary things. And sometimes like even, uh, at that seminar, I was a little fearful of being able to perform at Chuck's thing. And it turned out to, again, be one of the best ones that I had conducted. And it always brings me back to a saying that I quote from Gus D'Amato, uh, Tyson's trainer, whether it was his original saying, Jeff Thompson's also used to, but the saying goes, fear is a friend of extraordinary people. Meaning that any, Jeff Thompson used to say, anyone who says they don't feel fear is either lying or they're stupid. You know, it's what you do with it. And I think having a bit of fear sort of, it, it actually brings out that warrior mindset in, in you, or at least it can, you know, and that we are capable of doing amazing things, even when we think we're at our lowest ebb, you know? So now I appreciate that feedback very much. Um, you know, it's, as I said, we're all human, you know, we all get tired. We all have fears. We all have 
feelings of, oh, gee, am I going to be good enough, you know? But but the biggest thing is daring to participate anyway, daring to go, you know what, I'm going to say yes and I'm going to take that step forward and I'm going to perform to the best of my ability. And, you know, it's uh, that's hopefully the mindset I've sort of learned to develop. All right, I know you've got to stick around and do the bonus questions for us, but for anyone who is leaving us here, Richard, you're a legend of the martial arts. I know you still have a full-time MMA and martial arts academy. If people want to know more about you, where can they go to learn? Well, uh, it, you know, I have a, a richardnortonbjj.com. I don't have a website anymore. Obviously, Facebook, you know, uh, look, there's, there's too many people on there now, but anybody can message me, you know, on Messenger if they want to get a message or have a question or anything else, happy to help in whatever way I can. And the last, the last thing I'd want to say, by the way, and I always say this just as a little note of encouragement to some of the younger martial artists out there that... All I all I've done with my life, you know, I've said this a lot of times that all I wanted to be was the best martial artist that I could be. That's my through line. It's always been my through line. I'm 70 now and still my through line. And everything good that happened in my life has happened as a result of that. Doing movies, working with people like Jackie Chan and Chuck Norris and traveling the world, doing bodyguard work, et cetera, et cetera. It's just come about of, of that dream of just trying to be the best martial artist I can be. And that doesn't mean in any way that I'm up to the caliber of some of the people I've mentioned, some I'm better than, some I'm not nearly as good as. It doesn't matter. You know, be careful about comparing yourself always in a way that will cause you to lose self-confidence or, or confidence in your ability to have a very fulfilling journey. So I would just say, as I've said, that, if a skinny little asthmatic kid from Croydon can end up sort of having the life I've had, then really it's possible for anybody. It just gets about down to how badly do you want it? What are you prepared to do to make that dream happen? You know, so just go for it. You know, I, I have no special physical abilities in any way, shape or form. Managed as I keep saying to have a wonderful life. So again, it's possible. Just keep in there. Look at the martial arts as a possible source of passion if you're a young person. There's many avenues it can take you in many directions martial arts can take you on. It did for me, and it's uh, it's something that I'll be uh, forever um, you know, grateful for. Very well said. I can't think of a better note to end the, the main interview on. So thank you again for your time, Richard. Uh, Patreon contributors, make sure you head on over to Patreon to hear the bonus round with Richard coming up. You'll be hard-pressed to find a martial artist on the planet that has the depth and breadth of experience as Richard Norton, uh, whether it be 50 years of traditional martial arts and learning traditional values in the martial arts, through to the flashy Hollywood stunt world, through to reality-based self-defense before it was even called reality-based self-defense, it was just called uh, working on the door, <laughs> to bodyguarding and uh, personal security work all over the world with the world's biggest celebrities, uh, to being at the uh, founding days of, of uh, kickboxing and uh, combat sport in Australia, being one of Australia's first Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belts and, uh, and now a fifth-degree black belt in a grappling art. I mean, there is very little that Richard Norton has not done. So to be able to have a conversation with him and pick his brain is a tremendous honour, and I thank him very much for his time. 
Now, if you want to know more about Richard, uh, make sure you check out his website. And I just have to let you know before we leave today, our guest next week is the one and only, the legend himself, Jeff Thompson. That's right. Watch my back. Animal Day, Dead or Alive, Red Mist, 45 other books. Jeff Thompson is on the podcast next week. Don't miss it.